Welcome back to the Practicology Podcast, everyone. We're glad you could join us for another episode. And Matthew, you're taking us into an important subject today, one which will again lead me to caution listeners that uh, there may be some content today that you may not consider appropriate for little ears. But I'm really thankful for everyone that will be listening today as we think about a practical theology of our bodies. Yeah, it's so important because of the moral whiplash to which our culture subjects us. On the one hand, the culture seems to teach at times a body obsession. My body is the most important thing about me. On the other hand, there is this increasing sentiment of body denial. My body is irrelevant to who I really am. Now, those two messages are contradictory, hence the moral whiplash. And today we want to appreciate the Christian ethic for the body that says this body of mine is not everything, but it sure does mean something. In the words of 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13, the body is for the Lord. Yeah, and 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, where Paul is showing the bad theology behind sexual immorality and urging believers to flee sexual, sexual immorality, is where we're anchoring our thoughts today. It's the passage from which we're going to develop this practical theology of our bodies. So if you're not driving, you might want to open your Bible or pull it up on your phone And Matthew's got some practical lessons about the body from this chapter today. Firstly, the body has a purpose. Verse 13 says the body is for the Lord. In verse 20, we are to glorify God with our body. The body has a purpose. In Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, she gives us the words of a young woman as recorded in a BBC interview. It doesn't matter what living meat skeleton you've been born in. It's what you feel that defines you. Notice what she says. It doesn't matter what living meat skeleton you've been born in. It's what you feel that defines you. Well, scripture takes a higher view of the body than referring to it as a meat skeleton. Now, the genetic makeup, the hardwired design in our bodies, that has great significance in helping us understand who we are, made in the image of God, and also how we are to behave in our body. Matthew, I don't think the Corinthians used the word meat skeleton, um, but they, they had adopted a low view as well of the body. So it seems that their argument that Paul's combating here, their argument was, well, just like my stomach is for food in this life and I can eat whatever food I want, so my body is for sex and I can have sex with who I want to because just like my digestive system will be destroyed after I die, so will my body be destroyed. So I can do whatever I want with it. Yeah, it's a good summary. And Paul is saying, no, there's a higher calling for your body. Sure, your stomach, your digestive system was designed to consume food. That's the purpose of the digestive system. But while your body is capable of a sexual union, you wouldn't say that's the main purpose of the body. Jesus possesses a real human body, but he never engaged in a sexual union Your body is for the Lord. It's for the glory of God. Now, I'll just come in here for a moment, Matthew, because whenever we talk like this, we do need to be careful not to give the impression that sexual unions are a bad thing. Uh, God created food. It isn't evil. Food is actually good. And God created sex. It isn't inherently evil. It is good. Sure. Thank you. As in 1 Corinthians 10, you can eat and drink to the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians 7, there is a sexual union that is for the glory of God, that between a husband and a wife. But I guess that's the point. The glory of God must be the overarching and controlling factor. God is the creator of our bodies. 
One of Darwin's most significant accomplishments was likely to imply that nature has no purpose. It's all random. And if nature isn't a revelation of God's purpose and will, then I am free to impose my own will. Yeah, in other words, I can do what I want with my body. So the thinking goes, yeah. So while we're focused on the words of 1 Corinthians 6 today, this is also a reminder that that God does speak through his revelation in nature as well. The design of our bodies reflects creatorial purpose. God designed the birds to fly in the sky. God designed symbiotic relationships between bees and flowers. And God designed the woman to complement the man. While she was first created for him, she is designed in such a way that, that all future men and women would come from her. Yes, there are clear biological distinctions between male and female bodies. It is significant that when the Lord was asked questions about marriage and divorce in Mark chapter 10, he started his response by teaching, from the beginning, God made them male and female. He made them the same in some ways so that they would relate to each other. He made them different in important ways, also so as to relate to each other. So the physical design of our bodies are major clues to our personhood. Every cell in your body corresponds to your sex, either XX or XY. So the biology of our bodies tells us who we are. That's the creator's work. So to have a male body is to have a body that is designed to be capable of a loving union with a female. And to have a female body is to have a body that's designed to have loving union with, with a male. Therefore, same-sex unions ignore the fact that our bodies are for the glory of God because they are defying the Creator's design of our bodies. Now, we'll talk on another episode sometime about same-sex attraction, and I know it is possible for sincere believers in Christ to struggle with that, to sense an attraction to someone of the same sex instead of a natural attraction to the opposite sex. Uh, that's a conversation we need to have sometime too, Mike. Yeah, for sure. But what we're saying right now is that a sexual joining of bodies is reserved for people of the opposite sex. In fact, scripture reserves it for one man with one woman in the bond of marriage. And one of the reasons for that, not the only reason, but one of the reasons is that one of the purposes of our body's design is procreation through that sexual union. Again, it's not the only purpose and it's certainly not the regular result of the sexual union, but that's the design. So I know the two things are entirely different and should not be looked at the same, but both homosexual unions and transgender behavior share this thinking. Why should my body inform my psychological identity? Why should my moral choices be dictated by the arrangement of my body? And the answer is that God designed the male and female body distinct with a purpose. But let's come back to this for a moment. While this episode is talking about sex, remember the body is not primarily for sex, but for the Lord. And solid proof of that is what you've already mentioned, Matthew. The Lord Jesus had a real human body. No one has ever brought as much glory to God in a human body as our Lord did. And remember, he grew up through teenage years, uh, became a young adult, experienced full manhood, and he lived a God-glorifying, rich, meaningful life without once engaging in sexual union. That is important and it's worth emphasizing because the culture says that a sexually liberating unhinged lifestyle is the path to self-realization. And they think to deny yourself sexual experiences, it's like it's undermining your own humanity. 
Well, the Lord Jesus shows us that the culture's thinking is a myth. He never experienced a romantic relationship or a sexual union. Yet, as you've said, there was never a life as fulfilling as his. And yet this doesn't mean that we're saying romance and sexual unions are wrong. No, they are good gifts from our creator God. We're just saying they aren't everything. And living in a hyper-sexualized culture as we do can give us the impression that it is everything. It dominates music and media and marketing. The culture in many ways worships sex. And yet here's that moral whiplash you're talking about, Matthew, um, because they also say, why do you Christians get so bent out of shape about this? You know, it's, it's just a physical act. What's the matter? It, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, but it does mean something. It certainly is not everything. The body is for the Lord. The Lord is everything. And in the kingdom to come, in our resurrected bodies, there will be no sexual intimacy. So it's not everything. It's not, it's not what the body is primarily for. But God designed that physical union to have great significance. Christianity says it is so intimate and meaningful and special that it is reserved for a very intimate and meaningful and special relationship. So when Paul argues against sexual immorality, notice he doesn't do so by banning physical pleasure but he's elevating the significance of the activities of your body. So he's not saying, oh, just focus on the soul or the, the spirit. The body's bad. No, he, he makes his argument by elevating the significance of the body. In fact, he says, we're always going to have a physical body. Hmm, I think I hear lesson two coming. You do. So firstly, the body has a purpose. Secondly, it has a destiny. Verse 14, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Unintentionally, our language sometimes undermines the importance of the body. We're at times trying to place some emphasis on the fact that we'll exist beyond death. And we say, look, the, the body's just clothing, the real you is the soul, and you know the, the clothing's gonna be discarded. Well, I get that there's some value in emphasizing our existence beyond death, but I don't try to talk just that way anymore. Um, because scripture places a lot of emphasis on our bodies and that we're always going to have a body. Paul argues for the importance of what you do with your body because he says God is going to raise you. The believer's body will be raised in a changed form, incorruptible. So he says we're not to think that there are no consequences then in the future for what we do with our body now. God will destroy the stomach, the digestive system, but he's not going to destroy the body. It's our destiny to possess a glorified, physical, material, tangible body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Matthew, this is another one of those instances where we just stand in awe at how Scripture is so up to date. It's an ancient word, but a living word that speaks to the 21st century thinking. So much of the talk surrounding these issues takes a low view of the body. You know, uh, my body shows me I am this, but I feel that. My body is made for this, but today I feel that. But to be guided by temporary changing feelings while ignoring the clear guidance and biology of our bodies is taking a much lower view of the body than God does. But I think you're going to show us that's nothing new, right? That's one of the ancient errors of the philosophies of, of the old world. Yeah. Uh, again, Nancy Piercy points out how many major philosophies of ancient times like Platonism, Neoplatonism, Hinduism, Gnosticism, and Manichaeism, they all taught uh, a salvation that was experienced as a break from the material, some sort of liberation from the problem of the body, some sort of flight from a physical world into a spiritual world. Gnosticism said, the soma is a sema. 
soma is the Greek word for body. Sema is a Greek word for tomb. So the soma is a sema. The body is a tomb. Gnosticism is offering an escape from that tomb and from the material world. A salvation that lets you ascend to a spiritual realm beyond physical matter, because whoever made physical matter clearly made a big mistake. And they all taught that to be like God, you need a, a liberation from the body. Yeah, but our problem isn't that we possess physical bodies. Our problem is spiritual, the nature of sin within us. So the body of sin that Romans 6 mentions, the, the body of sin, it, it doesn't mean that the body is itself sinful. But it's looking at the body as an instrument of indwelling sin, where, where sin operates in it and, and accomplishes, it performs sins through the instrument of our body. And similarly, when Paul writes in Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's not looking for an escape from the physical universe, but from the frustration of indwelling sin. Remember, Romans 8 speaks of the redemption of our bodies. So God is the maker of physical matter, he bent down and got his hands dirty in that matter, took some clay, formed the body of a man, then built a woman from that man's rib, and he said this was very good. So Christianity is so beautifully different from the philosophies of the world. God actually sent his own son to possess a body when men nailed that son to a cross and put his lifeless body in a tomb. God didn't leave that lifeless body to rot and corrupt. He saw no corruption. God raised him from the dead. Yeah, and the God who raised the Lord in his body will raise us up also. We will come back in Christ's kingdom on earth with glorified, sinless bodies. And like the Lord Jesus, we will forever have physical, material bodies. So brothers and sisters, what we're saying is this. Who we are is forever tied to our bodies. In fact, verse 14 doesn't say he raised up the Lord's body, but he raised up the Lord. He will raise up us. Do you know why? Because he's emphasizing the person. And the person and their body go together. The person and their body go together. Think with me about how that relates to another important subject for a moment. Millions of aborted babies are eternal persons. They have been denied life on earth but they will be raised up with glorified bodies. They were defenseless here, but they will yet reign with Christ forever. And let me speak tenderly about this. I, I'm sure there are listeners who have lost babies in utero. I'm not trying to bring up difficult memories for you. Just reminding you, God will raise them up in glory. They are people and they will have a body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for that reminder. And I guess what we're saying here today, Matthew, is that secular thought is being driven by this split between the body and the person, as if my body is not part of my authentic self. And that idea is fracturing what God intended human beings to be. It was God's intent from the beginning that persons live in unity with their body in uh, a popular way that maybe we've said this wrongly in the church. We've said things like, the soul is what I am, the body is what I have, right? But that, I don't think that's true. The, what we are is a psychosomatic being. We are a, an embodied person. Spirit, soul, and body. Yeah, and while death rips apart soul and body, the resurrection will unite them. That's the destiny of the body. Let's move into our final point, but remember this. If the body is distinct from the person, then there need not be a correlation between my gendered person and my body. There need not be a correlation between who I am and who my body is fitted to unite with. But 1 Corinthians 6 says there's great significance to your body. 
and there's great significance to whom you are united. Verse 15, your bodies are the members of Christ. There is a sacredness to the body. It has a purpose, a destiny, and a sacredness. We have been united to Christ. Our bodies are the members of Christ, and our union with Christ is what controls everything, beloved. Matthew, can I interrupt you here just to ask, um, how can it be that our bodies are members of Christ? Like, what, what is that saying to us? Well, I think it reflects what you were just saying a moment ago, Mike. It's, it's saying that our whole person has been united to Christ. Personhood and bodies go together. So salvation affects my body. While the redemption of my body is still future, it is already guaranteed. The Holy Spirit has made our bodies his temple. So salvation affects my whole person, including my body. Thank you. That's, that's helpful. So verse 17, it is going to establish that our union with Christ is a spiritual union. Verse 17, anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. But that union affects our bodies as well. We, we can't say, oh, since my union with Christ is spiritual, I have liberty to do whatever I feel like with my body. No, our body is a sacred vessel. Excellent. And, and this is why the uniting of bodies should be viewed as a sacred act. Don't cheapen it. Like you said earlier, Mike, the Christian message is not that sex and sexuality are bad, dirty things. No, they're good. This is how God made us, and God speaks positively about it in Scripture. But what we're saying now is it's not only a good gift from God, it's also sacred. So Christianity has actually a higher, more nobler view of sex than the world does. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something worth repeating, I think, Matthew. And I think that's actually shocking to many people today, that Christianity has a higher, nobler view of sex and of the body than the world does. And even the physiology of our bodies teaches us to have a higher view of sex, I think. You know, some people like to talk like they can shut out the emotional dimension of sexual unions. But I think there's so much evidence to contradict that, or at least to say that they're not as successful as they might wish. In fact, we're, we're not supposed to shut out the emotional side of it. It's designed by God to be better where there is a good emotional connection and also to make the emotional connection stronger. So to try and ignore that is to contradict the science of our bodies. For sure. Yeah, uh, Lauren Winner, she's an associate professor of Christian spirituality at Duke University, and she renders the idea of 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16 like this. Don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise, whether you do or not? Don't you know when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise, whether you do or not. Well, this is why sex is restricted to marriage. The most complete and intimate physical union is an expression of the most complete and intimate personal union. The physical act is not all there is to the one flesh relationship, but it's an important expression of it. It is an act of self-giving between people who are giving their lives to one another. That's why it's a sacred act. So friends, we've covered some really important stuff today. And we're just trying to show that a healthy spirituality recognizes that we are stewards of our bodies. The body is a temple. It's not a God, but it is a temple. You don't worship temples. You worship God in the temple. Making an idol of the body leads to dishonoring our bodies. Recognizing it as a temple of the Holy Spirit leads to glorifying God with our bodies. And that's why God gave us a body in the first place, to serve him in righteousness. And I'm not a steward of what I wished I had, but I'm a steward of what God has, in fact, given to me. 
that's applicable to the spiritual ministries to which he calls us, and it's equally applicable to the body he has given us. Thank you. So catch these lovely words from Sam Alberry. The body that is pleasing to Jesus is not necessarily one that would adorn a billboard advertisement by a highway or turn heads at the beach. It is a body consecrated to Jesus, given over to him to be fully used in his service. Well, that's a great word to close on. Thank you for that, Matthew, and for this episode. Thank you to everyone who tuned in. Feel free to let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook or you can email us at info at practicologypodcast.com. May the Lord bless you all.